The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Thank you guys. Poor Sam. I felt bad for him. There's nothing worse when you're a worship leader than breaking a song. Uh, break, excuse me, breaking, breaking a song, but uh, breaking a string. And it always happens, it seems, at the very beginning of a worship set. And then you have to labor through that at the end. But you did good, Sam. Most people probably didn't even know until I just now said it. So I just exposed you. Um, you're welcome. Hey, um, grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Galatians chapter 4. We are well over now the halfway point of the book of Galatians. In fact, we're going to finish chapter 4 today, which will only leave chapter 5 and 6. And chapter 4 is really the pinnacle of Paul's argument here. It's kind of the peak if you will, of the book. So from here forward, um, things are going to change. He's going to start dealing with some other things, just Christian living and restoring people who are fallen and stuff like that. But the peak of his argument regarding legalism and religion and grace and all of those, this is the culmination. He's been setting them up for the knockout punch, if you will, which takes place in this particular text Um, It's also one of the more complicated or the most complicated part of the book of Galatians to work through. So I'm going to walk us through it as meticulously as I dare without, you know, putting you guys to sleep. But but also um, trying to bring this around to Paul's conclusion. And I'm going to warn you, some of you won't like it. Some of you just won't like it. If I didn't run you out last week by telling you about my sinful pride when I got ran over by a guy in a wheelchair, I might accomplish it today. Um, it's just the truth. And so what I think is really important before we go any further is that we stop and pray um, for me and for the things that I'm going to share that, that this would be what God has for this church. Because I don't care who the pastor is or who the speaker is, we are all sinful fallen men and we don't need men's opinions or men's ideas. We need the word of God to navigate and guide and direct our churches. Um, and, and this is an important and, and tricky and even controversial text. So if that didn't draw some of you guys in, it'll at least maybe drag you through the boring part of what we're going to talk about to hear what I'm going to say at the end, right? So don't go to sleep on me. But more than anything, we need to pray. So let's do that. Father, we need you. Lord, we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your wisdom, we need your love, we need your direction. If you aren't here, and if your spirit doesn't speak to us and teach us, we are wasting our time. God, I pray for myself, Lord, in particular right now, that that even the things that I've been preparing over the weekend to, to say, God, that if they're not subject with your will and your word, Lord, would you stop them? Lord, would you change even the thoughts as they come out? Or would you protect your people from the likes of me? That if there's things that we take in as we gather here together that aren't your will for your church, that aren't in line with your scripture, may they be forgotten forever. But God, may our hearts be softened for your truth. May we not pick and choose things we like and don't like. 
May we instead, Lord, be willing to allow you to lord over our lives rather than us lording over your word and trying to shape a God into our image when it is us who have been created in yours. So, Father, we pause now to humbly ask that you would be our teacher, that your spirit would move, that, Lord, you would guide the words I speak and you would guide where those words land in the hearts and souls of the listeners. And that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh, our King, our Rock, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be starting in verse 21. To this point, Paul has been hot. He's been aggressive as he's taught. This book, more than really any other book in the Bible, um, it is written from a position of anger. And, and I meant when I said that, I don't mean sinful anger. Oh, yeah, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up nice and high. We do have some fine looking gentlemen that'll make sure that you get one. If you don't own a Bible, this is a gift to you. We pray it would serve you well. I forget that from time to time. Don, thank you for stepping in in front of me there. There's someone in the back corner that needs one. Um, we're in Galatians chapter four. It's about, oh, I don't know, that far back. And... Um, so Paul, up to this point, has been angry. He's been writing from a position of anger, righteous anger, not sinful, wrathful anger, but he sees a tremendous danger to these churches that he planted some years previously, and he's fired up. And he's been very aggressive in the language even that he's used as he's talked to these people and to these churches. He's called them fools. He's called them idiots. He's called them dummies. He said, you're worshiping demons. He said, you guys are just puzzling to me. I can't even figure you out. He even said, as we saw last week, he said right before this passage in verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. In other words, biblically inspired, he writes, yeah, I'm hot. And, and I wish I was different. I wish I could talk to you from a different tone, but I'm fired up now about this because he has been pounding away from the very beginning about the idiocy, and this would be his word, the idiocy of anyone who has experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that you would then turn and return to slavery, putting yourself under God's law and performance-driven, I need to earn God's favor, that sort of life. And that's what's going on. These churches that were based on the gospel and they were saved by grace have had people now come in and tell them, you know, all that stuff Paul teaches you, it's good, all that grace stuff, but you also need to do this and this and this and this. And if you're not doing these things in addition to the grace of Jesus, then you're not really saved and God's upset with you. And so there's this whole idea of I need Jesus plus I need to earn my salvation. And Paul is angry at this. He's angry at the teachers for teaching it and he's angry at the people for believing it and hearing it. And so he's gonna deal with it today. He wants it out. That's really the conclusion. Get this out of the church. And so here he begins by, he's going to show them the, the beauty of what they have and the lunacy and the slavery of what they've now submitted themselves to. And so in verse 21, he says this, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? Now, being under the law, we're going to have to clearly define a few things to make sure I don't get in trouble or lead anyone in a wrong direction today. So the first thing we want to talk about is when Paul says to people about being under the law, he doesn't mean people who are just obedient to God's word, okay? Please understand this. 
If you are a Christian saved by grace, you are expected to be obedient to God's word. So don't take the things that I'm saying today as, because we have Jesus, we don't have to obey anything. That is absolutely not true. I wrote a whole blog article yesterday about it. This is not true. You're expected as a follower of Jesus to obey God's word. Everybody with me on that? Amen? Okay. That's not what he means when he says under the law. When he's talking about people who are putting themselves under the law, he's saying when you are putting yourself in a position where you believe you are having to earn God's favor by your performance to the law, that's what he's talking about. Or if you think you have to do certain things, jump through certain hoops, clean yourself up to a certain degree before God can save you or before God wants anything to do with you performance-driven, I need to make up for my sin by doing really good stuff, otherwise God's not going to be happy with me. That kind, that's what he means by under the law. You are defining how God feels about you based on your performance, whether it be salvation or otherwise. Everybody with me on that? That's what it means under the law. And so he says, you people who are putting yourselves under the law, have you actually read it? Like, do, do you even know the law that you're submitting yourselves under? Because the law is actually telling you that it can't do what you are expecting the law to do. This is his point. So he says, for example, he goes into verse 22. It's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So you guys know the song, Father Abraham had how many sons? Many sons. Okay, but we don't care about any of them except for two today. Okay? Father Abraham had two sons. Okay? Now, we're gonna, we're gonna do, I'm not going to assume anyone knows this story. We're going to do some backstory on this. Abraham is the father of the people of Israel, the father of the Jewish nation. And way back in the Old Testament, before Abraham had any kids, when it was just him and his wife Sarah, who was barren and couldn't have children, God came to Abraham and he said, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. Abraham, look up at the sky. You see all those stars? You're going to have more children than that. Abraham, look at the sand on the seashore. You see all those pieces of sand? You're going to have more children than that. I'm going to make you a great nation. And he gives Abraham this amazing promise. But then a ton of time goes by. And as the time keeps going, no baby's coming. And Sarah, his wife, still barren, hears the promise reiterated and laughs. She's like, whatever. As if, I'm an old lady, I'm barren, we keep hearing about this promise and nothing's happening. And so as time continues to go by, it starts to look like, okay, God made that promise, but he either changed his mind or he needs some help. That's the idea. So Sarah takes matters into her own hands and she takes her servant, a woman named Hagar, and goes to Abraham and says, honey, I have a surprise for you. Now, Shocking that this isn't going to go well, right? But this is what she does. Now, this is normal in the culture at the time. If you couldn't have a son, then the woman would take her slave, bring her to the husband. They would have, you know, do what birds and bees do. They would have a baby, and then that baby would be cared for by the, the, the original wife as their son. It was how they protected the lineage of the family, and, and that's how they got their, their heirs to be able to pass things down. So it was normal in the culture, it was just was really unwise, really, really unwise. So I don't want to spoil the ending, it's going to go bad. So Sarah, can't have children, gets Hagar, says, all right, if God's promising us this, all these children, I guess God's waiting on us to do something about it. And so even there, you see this, this coupling or attempted coupling of God's promise and man's effort. 
And so she brings this slave in, brings her to Abraham, says, here you go, uh, sleep with her, we'll have the baby. They do it, the baby's born, the baby's name is Ishmael. And Abraham loves Ishmael. It's his son, he loves Ishmael. And he really wants Ishmael to be the son of the promise. And he's excited for Ishmael to be that son. But God says, "Uh uh-uh, no. Abraham, no. I made a promise to you. I said, this is what I'm going to do through you. I don't need your help over here. I wasn't asking for you to do this. This is outside of my will. Ishmael is not the son of the promise. Well, then some time goes by, and Sarah ends up having a baby, a miracle baby. She's 90 and has a baby. Like, that's a Jerry Springer show in and of itself, much less the rest of this stuff, right? So she has a baby at 90. His name's Isaac. Laughter, Isaac, and he's the son of the promise. Now, who would have thought drama would ensue between these two families, right? Suddenly there's tension between them, there's, there's fighting between them, and it's, it's not going very well. But this is the story. Two sons, one was the son of the slave woman, Hagar, and that's Ishmael. Everybody got that nod? The other is the son of the free woman, his wife Sarah, that is who? Isaac, and that's who the nation of Israel comes through. That's why you'll even hear there, to this day, they will say that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're laying that lineage out, okay? So this is the two sons. This is what's going on. So now, verse 23. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, look where he's going already. The argument all along is, you can't, God can And so he says, the son of the slave was someone who was born through the flesh. In other words, you did that on your own. That was a younger woman. She's not barren. You didn't need a miracle for that. You could take care of that one for your own. No need to pray or ask God for a miracle. That had nothing to do with God intervening and bringing forth some sort of promise. Okay, that's what he's saying there. Um, The son of the free woman, Isaac being born to a barren woman at 90, ah, that's going to take some God work, right? That's a miracle that's going on there. And he says in verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Let's pause on this for a second. Some of you, and I know who some of you are, are Bible interpretation nerds like me, and already you hear that word allegorically, and you go, ugh, okay? So let's talk about this for just a second. Allegory means, um, if you said that something is an allegory, it means it's a story that has sort of a hidden meaning in it that may not have anything to do with the actual players in the story. It's something that happened and we pull a picture from that that applies to us that might not have anything to do with them. And biblical interpretation people get themselves into tons of trouble by doing this all the time. By taking Bible stories and going, there's gotta be some sort of hidden meaning in here that usually has to do with me. And so I'll give you the, the famous example of this, and I've told it before. The, the famous example of this is the story of, of um, David and Goliath, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, right? David and Goliath. Well, how is it that people interpret that story and tell that story? I mean, I've, I've had this taught to me this way in Sunday school before many, many times, and if you grew up in church, I'm sure at some point you have too, where you're in there and you're listening to the story and you say, see, this army couldn't do anything and they were afraid and they didn't have faith in God and Goliath's there, this giant enemy, but David came and he had faith and he had five stones, only needed one and because of his faith in God, look what he was able to do and if you have faith in God too, then you can take on the giants in your life and man, you'll be able to take them down. Anybody ever heard that story taught that way? Anyone? Lots of hands going up and lots of lazy people not raising hands. So, Okay, 
That's beautiful and wrong, totally wrong. Oh, it, it, it might be true. I mean, faith in God might allow us to do things that we would never be able to do and accomplish otherwise, but that's not the point of the story at all. Because in the overall flow of scripture, nowhere in the Bible is the push to tell you that you can do anything. In fact, the Bible says the exact opposite, doesn't it? It says, apart from who? Christ, you can do nothing. You go, wait, but that's the whole story because he had faith in God. No, but when you do that, this is, where, this is why it's wrong. We put us into the Jesus spot. And here's what I mean by that. So, so if the hidden meaning in there is like, and we can be like David. We put ourselves in that position. If we have faith, we can do all this stuff. But we aren't David. Jesus is the greater David. And the real story going on there is like, there is an enemy there that we can't possibly defeat. We aren't David in that story. We're the Israeli army that's hiding on the hills that can't possibly beat Goliath, sitting over there scared to death, wishing someone would come bail us out. And Jesus is the David who comes and takes on our greatest enemy, sin, death, and Satan, and slays it for us. That then we, as you read the story, the people of Israel get to just charge the field now and enjoy and celebrate the cleanup battle and this guaranteed victory. We get to be a part of that because of what Jesus has done. That's the story of David and Goliath. But when you take it allegorically, you make it about you. And, and, and here's another danger in doing that. When you take Bible studies and you go, where's that hidden meaning in there and how does this stuff apply to me? Nine times out of ten, what you end up doing is turning it into some sort of, whether you intend to or not, some sort of moral or behavioral type story. And it becomes about man, look at all these messes in the Bible. And if I had just not done like David who looked at Bathsheba, then I wouldn't have to deal with the fallout of that. Or if I could not be like um, Noah who got drunk or whatever the different stories are. And, and so all those stories become about how we end up changing our behavior and avoiding the messes that are there. And here's why that's a problem. Because the real thrust of scriptures is how God comes in the messes and works anyway. And that's the part we probably need the most, don't you think? Because life is messy. Life is messy. And we need to know that there is a gracious, loving God that comes in our messes, isn't afraid to come and inject himself into our situations because he loves us and works anyway. And doesn't look at us and go, I am done with you, Jeff, but says, I love you, Jeff, and I'm still here. And when we turn the Bible stories into stories about us, we tend to lose that. We need that. The, the, Bible, the, the easiest way to approach biblical interpretation really is to just always start with the assumption, this book is not about me. It's for me. It's given to me. It will help me. But it's about God. And it's about the work of God and the saving grace of God, and the majesty of God, and the power of God, and the heart of God, that's what this book is about. And when we take things and turn them allegorically, we tend to lose some of that, and we make it about us. Now, all that being said, in this passage, Paul says, let's talk about allegory. So how do you know? When's the difference? Easiest way is this. If the Bible says, take this passage as an allegory, do it. If the Bible doesn't say, take this as an allegory, don't do it. So, for example, you might say, well, okay, Jeff, then, then you're saying that all that stuff in there actually happened. They're not just stories that we're supposed to take some sort of meaning from? Yes. Jeff, come on now. 
Surely you do not believe that Jonah got swallowed up by a whale and spit up on the beach three days later. I would say, of course I don't believe that. He was swallowed by a fish and then three days later was spit up on the shore. He was not swallowed by a whale. But yes, I do believe that. I believe I believe Adam and Eve are the historical Adam and Eve that are the parents of every human being that ever lived. I believe that God created the heaven and the earth. I believe every single thing that's written in here actually did happen, but only because it did. (laughs) Just saying, only because it did. That was a delayed laugh. I don't know if that's good or not. I'll believe the best. Let's move forward. So, but in this particular passage, he says, no, let's take this as an allegory. He's saying this story about Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael and Hagar, there's something, there's a picture in here that we need to look at and and understand. So he goes, so let's take a look at it. And he says in verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is who? Hagar. Come on, I need to know you're awake. She is who? Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, I don't want you to miss what's going on here, because this is a massive slap in the face to the Jewish people. Here's what he's saying. You got two women. We got Hagar, and we have Sarah, and they had two children. We have Ishmael over here from Hagar, and we have Isaac over here from Sarah. Everybody tracking with me on this right now? Okay, he says, now the first woman, they represent these two different covenants. The first woman, Hagar, he says, is Mount Sinai, is a picture of Mount Sinai. Now, what did we get from Mount Sinai? We got the law. That's where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. That's where God's law was given. And he says, that is what present day, speaking in that day, present day Jerusalem, or in other words, the religious Jewish system that believed we have to jump through these hoops, do these things, live this way in order to earn favor with God. He's saying that's who modern day Israel is. Now, it'd be easy to miss this, but think about this. Ishmael, the son from Hagar, becomes the father of who? The Arab people. And it's all the Gentile nations of the world. And all of their, these are Gentile people and the fathers of Arab people, people they will battle with to this day. And he just said, they represent the modern day Jerusalem. That's a massive slap in the face. They are the slave, modern day Jerusalem, living under the law because this is the one who the son came through effort, not by God's grace. This is the picture he's painting, okay? So don't, don't zone out on me, hang in there. Then he says in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, let me tell you what he's doing here. In your Bible, uh, verse 27 is probably maybe uh, parenthetical or in italics or something because he's quoting a different passage. He quotes from Isaiah 54. And Isaiah 54 is significant because here's what's going on in that time. Hang with me on this, okay? If you don't hang with me through this, then you have to go to sleep when I get to the controversial part. Deal? So here's what's going on in Isaiah 54. Israel has been carried off into captivity and as a nation doesn't even really exist anymore. Everyone's been taking away, taken away. 
Israel is in exile, carried out of their land. They are captive. They are slaves. And it looks like they will never exist as a nation again. It looks like there's no hope. There's no way they're coming back to be a nation again when they've been carried off like this into captivity. And then God, through the prophet Isaiah, comes in and says, not so. I'm in control. And I'm the one who can bring life out of death. I'm the one who can bring life out of a barren woman, and it's using the same analogy with Sarah. And and so the picture here is really clear when you keep it in line with everything Paul's been saying all along. He's saying, look, the children of the promise are the people who understand that they can't, God can. That's really all it is. The people who are relying on God to work in their life are the children of the promise. The people who are trying to earn their own way are in slavery to the law. This is what he's saying. I mean, look, Paul's continually saying, not just in Galatians, but all over the place, that when we are weak, that's when he is what? Strong. And so the thrust of Scripture, even in Jesus' teaching, you go to the Beatitudes and it says, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The idea is this, when we come to an end of ourselves and realize there's nothing that we can do, we have no power to fix ourselves or help ourselves, that's when God flexes. When, When we can't do anything, that's when God shows up and says, now watch this. When human effort is removed, God's grace and might and power is what shines forth. And nowhere more than in salvation. This is what he's talking about here. That when there's no ability for life, God shows up. And he says in verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now he's talking to the Christians in the church. You brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time... He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. And so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free. Now remember what's going on here. Christians in a church based on the grace of God have now been infiltrated by teachers from outside that are telling them that's not enough. Now you need this, this, this. There's this conflict that's going on within the church between a legalistic group that says you have to earn God's favor and people that were born in grace by Paul with a pure, unadulterated teaching of the gospel. Paul says, you are the children of promise and they are the children of the slave woman And just like then, there's persecution. You're being persecuted by those that are teaching legalism to you. And what does the scripture say? The slave woman has to go. Get them out of the church. That's what he's saying. Now, I want to think about something. What he's laying out here is a contrast between children of the promise, God's children that have been born by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and slaves to the people who are under the law that believe they have to earn God's favor. And he lays out two options. He just says straight out, the invitation's simple. Do you want to be a slave or do you want to be a son? The enslaved, the line of Hagar, in this particular analogy, are the people who are enslaved to constantly looking to their own behavior to determine 
how their position is with God. So in other words, if you're nailing it one day, man, you got up early, you had all your devotions, you had gluten-free toast, like you're doing everything right all day, you exercised and you only listened to Chris Tomlin the entire time, like all that kind of stuff, and then on your way to work, you saw someone who's broken down and you pulled over, changed their tire, invited them to church, they said yes, served at a homeless uh, 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 shelter, served them some breakfast for a little while, went to work, played Christian music all day during work, never took even a moment to check ball scores or, or email that's not work-related. Like, you just nailed it all day. You said, God bless you to your boss. On your way home, you bought flowers for your wife, toys for your kids, came home, cooked, cleaned the house, didn't get upset with the dog. You're exhausted already. Didn't get upset with the dog. Like, you've been nailing it all day, and then you led a four-hour Bible study where your children repented and you baptize them in the hot tub afterwards. <laughs> like, that was your day. Well, when you go to bed that night and lay your head on the pillow, you're going to feel pretty good, right? But who has that day? <laughs> Nobody, it looks like. I don't, seriously. Here's what happens. We blow it, and then the guilt comes in. Not from God, but the guilt from Satan that says, see, see, Look at you, and you are going to go to church and lift your hands in worship, you stinking hypocrite. Your hands are bloody, Jeff. Your hands are bloody. How can you do this? How can you go there? How can you say that? You're going to read the Bible? You need to read the headlines on what you did yesterday and tell me how in the world can you come before God because he's mad at you. That's more likely what a lot of us experience a lot of times, right? And, and so when you live in this performance-driven view of Christianity, you are a slave to this behavior, constantly feeling like you have to modify and adjust and monitor your own behavior. And as a result, you are never free to be able to actually just go and enjoy sonship with God, to just enjoy the relationship with God. You're never free to pursue an actual, even though you know that Christianity is about having a relationship with God, you don't have time for it because you're working too hard. That's the reality of it. Last week, we picked on horror movies. Let's pick on romantic comedies now. Like I said before, there's only two or three stories in every romantic comedy that's ever been done, and one of them is this, and we've all seen it in one shape or form. I'll probably get movie titles from some of you after this, right? It's the one where it's the poor peasant boy, or maybe just the average blue collar, but he falls in love with the rich girl, and he, so he has to pretend that he's highbrow because she's not going to go slumming. So he's got to pretend like he's somebody rich and he puts on like he's fancy and all this kind of stuff. And he's got to hide his friends and hide his family, not let anybody know what's really going on in his life. And he's pretending to be something that he's not. And so sparks fly. Like they love each other. They do. And we're pulling for them because we like these people. They're people we like, good characters. So we're watching. We're like, yeah, you can do it. But the whole time we're like, just Tell her she won't care, but he's an idiot like every other guy. And so he's going through all this stuff and he's hiding this constant lie that's under the thing and then the movie comes to the peak and what happens? The lie gets exposed, usually by the jealous dude who actually wants her and who is the rich kid, always with blonde hair and a sweater tied around his neck and on the golf team. And so he exposes the lie and she's stunned. You've been lying to me all this time and dad is not happy because she's slumming now and everything explodes and there's tears and there's fragmented relationships and we're like, why didn't you just tell her? And then what happens? There's admission, there's confession, the lies brought into light, the truth is there, 
And suddenly there's restoration and reconciliation and joy and relationship, if it's a good romantic comedy. And so, so what does it tell us? This guy was never free to fully enjoy a genuine relationship with this girl because there was this underlying thing going on where he's constantly trying to pretend that he's something that he's not. And that's how a lot of Christians live. I have to fight really hard to try to be this super holy person. And as a result, there's this underlying thing that goes on that pollutes your relationship with God and you think it's what's gonna draw you closer. And as a result, you never get a chance to just enjoy your relationship with God the Father because you're too busy worrying about God the judge and what he thinks about you. And I mean, just, just think about this, okay? Most of us don't have issue with the doctrine of salvation and justification by grace. I, I think most of us in here, if we just said, we, I think we would all agree, yeah, we are sinners, we have fallen short of the glory of God, but praise God by his grace, he's come, he's, he's injected himself into human history, and Jesus lived this perfect, sinless life. He went to the cross on our behalf, God punished him for our sin, and if we believe in him, we have been granted forgiveness for our sin and, and admission into heaven. I think we would all agree with that. I, I think that's fine. The, even as mysterious as salvation is, I think we would be okay with that. Where the average Christian has a problem is going from that into where God would have us go next. God would have us go to adoption, but we have this tendency to go back to law. That's what our tendency tends to be. We tend to go back to performance-driven anxiety and go, now I'm saved and I'm a Christian. And, oh, I just got a Bible. They gave me a Bible for free, and there's a lot of rules in here. And, um, and now I need to start, and, and you have to appease God. It becomes performance. You got saved by grace, but you're falling back now into slavery by feeling like now I have to make God happy. That's what's going on in Galatia, and that's what goes on in churches all the time. Uh, there, there's a passage where Paul talks about this elsewhere in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Could you put that slide up for me? In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it says this, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, and this is what's happening in Galatia, this is what happens all the time in this room. But you have received the spirit of, what's the word? Adoption as what? Sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided you suffer with him. That's another sermon. We'll get to that some other time. So listen to what he's saying. You got saved and God put a spirit in you, but he didn't put a spirit of slavery in you that then you would fall back to like living in slavery to either sin or the law. He put his spirit that you might be his what? Son, daughter, child. You've been adopted into the family of God. And most Christians never get to fully experience the joy of being a son of God because you're spending all of your time bowed in fear before God the judge. And let's think about this for just a minute. Look, to be declared righteous and free and innocent, for, for us to stand before God the judge and because of the mercy of Jesus on the cross to be told you are forgiven, that's awesome, right? But to have God as Father is much better, much better. Because think of it this way, 
Who wants to go camping with the judge? Seriously. Have you ever been to court before? <laughs> Christians, no. We haven't been to court. Are you kidding me? Oh, jury duty once, yeah, but that's it. <laughs> no, I mean, who's been to court before? Traffic, court. I'm sure it wasn't your fault and you were found innocent. But what do you do? You dress a little differently. You walk nice and quietly. You wouldn't talk freely in a courtroom like you would maybe at a restaurant or something like that. You're reserved. Your behavior has to be careful because we don't want to upset anyone in there. Otherwise, it could go bad for us. We, we, we got to hire some professionals to make sure they coach us through stuff. So we, we go get a lawyer to tell us what we can and can't do. And we got to do whatever we can there. And we pay them a lot. And then we go before the judge and it's what? Yes, sir. No, sir. Whatever you want, sir. I'm begging you, sir. If it please the court, sir. And, and we're trembling before the judge, right? And we're just waiting for that gavel to fall. That's what it's like. No one wants to go camping with that guy. No one wants to go camping with that guy. Can we start a fire? Well, rule number four, three in the city zone code, paragraph two says no, not until eight o'clock. At 8.05, you can start a fire, but it can't be bigger than 33 square centimeters inside this pit. Oh, just get it over with. No, that's not fun. That's not fun. We want the dad who'll throw a firecracker in that thing, right? Like that's fun, right? But that's real. You've not just been granted forgiveness by the judge, the cold, hard judge, but that judge has then stood up, taken off that robe, and come around front and said, now come here, son, and wants to hug you and love you and have genuine relationship with you. He's not sending you back out and saying, now don't mess up anymore. And that's what our relationship is like. He didn't just save you so he could forgive you and turn you loose. He saved you so he could forgive you so that he can bring you in. And Paul's saying to the Galatians, so wh why are you returning back to this slavery? Why aren't you going camping with dad? But Paul says it elsewhere in Romans 4. Put this up. And he's going to drop the hammer even harder here. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be a heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, it is, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression, and that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Do you see what this means? He's saying, look, Christianity is about an adopted relationship with God the Father. It's not about how many hoops we jump through and making sure we're nailing things. And he even goes on to say what he's really saying here is, Frankly, there's going to be a lot of really upright, moral, upstanding religious people who are going to completely miss out on heaven. Think about that. Boy, that fires people up. You go tell a self-righteous person that they're going to miss out on heaven and watch the sparks fly there. But that's what he's saying. Like, and we've heard this. If you grew up in the church, you've heard this for years. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. But it is. Like, do you? It is. And so often we drift back to this whole religious-based, I have to do everything right. Now, like I said, not a popular message to share. This is not a popular, 
It's, it's a popular message out there. It's not a popular message for a lot of church people. Um, it's fearful, in fact. And, and let's just be honest. Here in the story, we see that these two mentalities are at war with one another. You have Ishmael. As the story goes on, Isaac's born. Ishmael doesn't inherit the promise. Isaac does. And what do you know? Rivalry ensues between them. And Ishmael is constantly persecuting Isaac. And finally, God says to Abraham, he's got to go. And through tears, Abraham has to kick Ishmael out of the house. You have to go. That legalistic end of things in the picture is completely driven out because there's conflict. These two mentalities are at battle. And verse 30 says, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free woman. In other words, he's saying to the church, hey, church, that legalistic mentality and those people that are persecuting others by looking down their nose through a legalistic lens, judging one another, putting burdens on you, persecuting all these other people, kick them out. That's what it says. That's not going to make a lot of church people happy in congregations all over this world today, but that's what he's saying. Now, I want you to think about something here. And I'm, I'm going to share this through a lot of fear and trepidation, to be quite honest with you. And just so you don't think it's just me being a maverick and just shooting off at the hip. Like, I, I talked to a couple of pastors, a couple of friends. I've talked to several people, including a recovering addict in our congregation. I've said, look, this is what I see. This is what I think this is saying. And this is what I want to say. And without question, unanimously, every one of them said, that's exactly what you need to say. But it's not... Not a lot of pastors are going to say this today, and, and I'm not saying it makes me brave. It probably makes me stupid, so we'll see. But the fear of this kind of teaching in churches is this. If we really tell people, especially our kids, that, that your behavior has nothing to do with how God feels about you or your status as a Christian, if we really tell people that, then the fear is it's going to give them freedom to slip into licentiousness. If we really tell people it doesn't matter what you do, that, that how God feels about you doesn't, doesn't depend on what you do, then they might just go do whatever it is they want instead of slipping back into legalism. And I think deep down, in all honesty, we would rather have our kids slip to legalism because it seems safer. They'll be more behaved if they're just taught the laws. And so that tends to be our tendency. And, and the best example to show you, a, a personal example that I can use to talk about how the Lord's brought me through some of this stuff, even with regards to my background, my own family, um, actually starts with what our particular church's stance is here regarding alcohol. And again, this could be used on a ton of different places, the movies you watch, the music you listen to, the clothes you wear, but, but this particular story has to do with our church's particular stance on alcohol. So... Lock the doors, please. But, and for all you Liberty people, no woo-hooing. I'm serious. So here's the deal. When our church began, we had no official position regarding what the elders or pastors or leadership at Heritage could or couldn't do regarding alcohol. Um, but the unspoken assumption was alcohol is completely off limits for any pastors or elders at Heritage. And, and it was really just something we had inherited from our background and it's based on two things. Number one, our understanding of our responsibility as leaders and wanting people, uh, not wanting to cause someone to stumble and wanting to set a good example, that kind of a thing as leaders. 
Um, And then also a King James Version interpretation of 2 Timothy where it says of deacons, they are not to be given too much wine. But then it says of elders, which is what the pastors, elders, bishops are not to be given to wine. So one says you, you can have a little but not much. The other just says not given to wine. And so we had never really explored this or talked about it, and and for one reason or another, and I don't even remember um, why it even came up, maybe we were just looking at qualifications for elders, we were getting more organized, which we still have a ways to go, but whatever the case was, we ended up, as a leadership, looking at this particular thing among other qualifications for elders and deacons in our church. And we started looking into this, um, we completely changed our position on that. What we discovered is that King James Version interpretation that says elders are not to be given too much wine, that's not actually in the text. That's only in the English translation of that. And in that case, what it's talking about is drunkenness. In other words, your pastor probably shouldn't get hammered, and I think we would all agree with that. Amen? (laughs) And so we looked at some different stuff, and this is what we actually decided. We did not feel that it is in keeping with Scripture, especially passages like this in Galatians, or the qualifications in Timothy, or any other part of the scriptures to put rules on or qualifications upon the leadership and elders of Heritage Christian Fellowship that are in addition to what the Bible clearly lays out and especially ones that would disqualify Jesus from serving in that position. And so we decided to leave it out. We decided if we really believe in personal liberty and personal convictions, then it needs to be left up to the individual. Now we stressed causing brothers to stumble sensitivity for people that deal with things. There's people in this room that deal with addictions. Um, we, we do, especially as the church grows and has sort of a community presence, there is, um, you know, people do look at you and it does matter. People go, oh, it doesn't matter what people think. We shouldn't live for what other people think. Christians, it kind of does. The Bible says that we're not to, that we are to avoid even the presence or excuse me, the appearance of evil. So it does matter. The way we behave out there does matter. So we need to be responsible and we need to keep all those things into consideration, but we were not gonna put a restriction on our staff or on our elders or on our leadership that the Bible clearly didn't, and so we didn't do that. Now, amongst our staff and pastors and stuff, we're sort of split. There's some people that'll enjoy, you know, a a beer as they're watching the game. I love to. Or there's others that enjoy a glass of wine as we eat at Jacksonville. Well, we don't eat at Jacksonville. Okay, a wine cooler at Mucho Gusto or whatever. But, um, (laughs) you know, we're, we're sort of across the board on that, and people have different personal convictions. And even my own personal convictions have over the years changed. There was a time when God said, you know what, that's a part of your life that represents some stuff you got into in college. You need a season to just be separated from that. And so, so before I was a pastor, and so I removed because God put that on my heart. And then some years ago, that was just removed. God had just freed me in that. And so um, I just admitted that I like an IPA, I guess. There we go. Keep the doors locked, please. But that's kind of what we decided as a church. Now, here's what happened. One day, uh, before, before I tell the story, let me clarify something. Your convictions matter And so if you're in here right now and you hear this and you're saying, man, Jeff drinks, Jeff has a beer so I can have a beer, I would say that's sinful. I would say you need to go to the Lord and have, what would the Lord have you do? I'm not your example. I'm not the one who sets your standards. God is. And so in no way do I share this to cut everyone free. We're not going to start keggers at our barbecues. None of that stuff's going to happen, okay? So I want to lay that out. And then, and then for others of you that are in this room, and some of you that I've talked to, um, because of family history, 
because of addictions, because of his, it would be supremely foolish of you to walk in that liberty. And unfortunately for you, you're just gonna have to wait till heaven. And that's just the reality of it. All of us have things that we deal with and we know where our weaknesses are and it would be foolish to even tap dance some of those lines as believers. We need to be wise, correct? Amen on that? And, and the other thing, let me define this. The Bible is crystal clear on drunkenness. Do not be drunk with wine. Kind of hard to be any more clear than that, okay? And don't go, well, then beer. No, it means don't be, okay? So that we're not, we're not talking about flirting with boundaries on that. You understand? Everybody with me on this? I want to make sure. I don't want anyone going out of here going, Jeff, get buzzed at church. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about non-sinful, responsible use of a beverage. That's what we're talking about. So here's what happened. So that was the stance that we made. My mom comes to visit, who is a staunch Southern Baptist, North Carolina woman. She comes to visit me from North Carolina. And one night, we go out on the back patio, and we're sitting out there, and we sat. It was one of those great summer nights where we sat out there into the dark. Didn't even turn the light on, just sat out there and enjoying the night. And as we were sitting out there talking, I was having a beer. And I could tell it was an issue for her, and she didn't want to say anything. Like, she would look down and then look at me and then just kind of, you know, that, that kind of thing. And I know my mom. I know what that means. And so finally, we just, I was like, can we just talk about this, mom? Let's talk. So we had this conversation, and we were, we were talking about this, and this is what my mom said, and this is why I share all of this. My mom said, she goes, aren't you worried that your children, if they see this, aren't, aren't you worried about where this could lead them to go? And here's why I, I said, mom, do you remember, do you, do you remember the household you created for us to grow up in? It was strict. It was super legalistic, especially regarding things like alcohol. I know, son, because we were trying to protect you from all of these different things, and we just wanted to give you the best possibility to be able to be protected and, and grow healthy. And I said, Mom, I need to tell you some stuff. <laughs> and most of which she knew, but there was a lot of stuff she didn't. She didn't know about physical abuse that happened at the hands of a family member when I was a child. She didn't know about all sorts of things that had gone on, influences that had come our way that we never knew anything about. And then she ended up sharing some history of stuff in our family that even affected some of that other stuff that I never knew about. And it was, it was a beautiful moment. It, it was my favorite conversation I've ever had with my mom. Because through tears, it was like for the first time really ever there was just this incredible honesty in talking about what was going on. But... but I have to admit, some of my mom's tears were because she was finding out that she had fought so hard for so long to protect me from so much and realized in the end it didn't matter, that it got there anyway. And you know why? Because the Bible guarantees that the law never fixes sin. It's not designed to, it's not supposed to, and it never has. What the law does is it drives sin under the surface. You know what the legalistic household I grew up in made me? Sneaky. Sneaky. Here's the thing, guys. The legalistic mindset, this is what Paul's saying. Here's really the conclusion for all this. This is what he's saying. Uh, actually, here was the beauty of it. You know what changed me, though? It wasn't laws that changed me. I grew up with laws. 
What changed me was later in life when I came to a pure understanding of the grace of God, that in spite of all the things that I had done or who I had been or what had happened to me, that there was a gracious, loving God that loved me. When I realized that, when that grace got a hold of me, I was ready to lay anything down and did to be able to follow Jesus through anything. It was the grace and love of Jesus that changed my life. It was not the laws that my parents set up when I was young. And so why do we share all of this kind of stuff? Because here's what Paul's saying. This is the thrust of what Paul's saying in this passage. Legalism is always an enemy of grace. Legalism and a legalistic attitude inside this church will always be an enemy to salvation. And you go, wait a minute, how can that happen? Because here's what happened. Either we teach people to live a certain way and God forbid they start actually pulling it off then they'll never understand that they actually need Jesus because they think they got everything covered. And so in that way, legalism prevents salvation. In another way, legalism will prevent salvation because what it does is we become people who judge spirituality based on external performance. And so when people come in the door that don't look like us, we will inevitably become judgmental, self-righteous. We will never be the kind of people that are going to be quick to go throw an arm around someone who's struggling because we're too busy analyzing things and deciding our spirituality based on our performance, which is stupid. Because when we do that, all we do is pick the sins we don't struggle with. We pick, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't cuss, I don't hang out with people who do. Which, by the way, that's what I'm talking about. Because now our spirituality even gets determined by hanging out with people who do some of those kinds of things. But never on that list do we put envy. Never on that list do we put coveting or pride or any of those kinds of things. And those are just as damning, every single one of them. What we do is we end up picking the things that we don't struggle with, and because it makes us feel good, it makes us feel spiritual. And here's the honest truth, gang. The bigger danger is not a slip into licentiousness, the bigger danger is a slip back into legalism. That's what Paul's teaching. When Jesus says, I would rather you be hot or cold, but this lukewarm stuff's got to go, that's what it's talking about. And we will become an enemy to salvation because if we become that legalistic type church, then anyone who ever might come through these doors that actually needs Jesus, they're going to feel different and judged and condemned. They're not going to find grace. They're never going to feel comfortable being around people the way sinners felt comfortable being around Jesus. The same Jesus who was actually called a drunkard by some, who was called a glutton by others, but who realized his mission, his overall mission was to save people. And so church, heritage, why are we still here? Why does the church exist at all? It is not to be a self-righteous, holy, spiritual club. That's not the purpose of the church. The reason we're here is because God's still saving people. That's why we're here. That's why in Peter it says, you guys have been saying Jesus is coming back forever and he never comes. And what does Peter say? He's being patient because he's still saving people. That's why we're here. And so these passages are hard and challenging, but they're heart checks that we would be wise to humble ourselves and allow God to do some conviction and some correcting. 
So, so, I mean, honestly, ask yourself some of the questions. The person who comes through on an average Sunday morning, and maybe they sit down next to you in the sanctuary, and they reek of alcohol. You can tell they've been binging last night for sure. What's your initial thought? Is it judgment or shame or condemnation, or is it that person needs Jesus? And that one question right there, that's a lightning rod. How would we react to the people that come in? Are we going to be the self-righteous, holy club that says, I'm not, I'm not going to throw an arm around that guy. He's a mess. Or, or are we going to understand that the whole reason the church is here is because God is still saving people? Because legalism will be an enemy to salvation. It always has been. It always will be. It's the reason Israel isn't saved now. May God give us grace, and I mean that in every way. May he give us grace to hear his words. May he give us grace to live these words. May he give us grace for our sin, and then may he give us grace that we might extend it to others around us. Amen? I, I know that some of this stuff is a little bit, it pushes on, on some boundaries that maybe things, expectations you may have even had from your own pastor for years. I would like to encourage you I'm more than happy to sit down and talk through things with people. I'm not afraid of that. It was with great trepidation that I said, I'm going to share this story today. I'll be honest with you. I would much rather people come say, man, I think that's wrong than disappear. Because I think that our relationship should be strong enough to work through those things. But I got to be honest with you too. Paul says, if push comes to shove, the legalistic attitude in the church has got to go. And so we have to look at this stuff with confidence too to, to just believe that even as uncomfortable of a word as this might be, it's God's word. And we'll stand on God's word and we'll trust what God has to say. And God's grace is just better. And guys, the world needs the grace of Jesus so bad out there. So many people need that. So may we not become whitewashed tombs, amen? Let's take a moment to stand and pray and worship, and Sam's going to close us in song, and let's just take a moment to meditate or cool down or <laughs> whatever it might be. God, we ask for your grace, Lord. Lord, as we even chew on these things in your scripture, Lord, that are difficult and challenging, and Lord, we need you more than anything. And so I pray even in this moment, God, you would just work in our hearts Allow us to meditate on these things for ourselves and for our church. Lord, what do you want heritage to look like? What do you want the people of heritage to look like? And how, God, can we be greater and greater vessels of your grace? Lord, are there legalistic tendencies that we all have? Are we enslaved to that in ways that we don't even see? Then will you, Lord, give us humility to deal with them? Lord, May we understand, like Paul does, that the biggest uh, indicator of Christian spirituality and maturity is a total dependence on you. I pray for people in this room, Lord. There are things that we struggle with all over the place, Lord. I pray that you would give us obedience and hearts for obedience, and, and you would help us in our struggles with sin and with all of those things. But God, may that not become our identity. May our identity not be based on what we do or how we behave or how we look, but instead, God, may our identity be based on the fact that you are our loving father, that we are your children. And may our identity as your children, part of your household, 
may, may everything we do flow from that. So we just pray these things, Lord, in your name. Let's sing.